This is the Blood Red podcast from the Liverpool Echo, giving you the inside track on all the big talking points from Anfield. Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the Bottom Line podcast from Liverpool Echo's Blood Red channel, covering everything off the pitch uh, at Liverpool Football Club. Today you've got a special guest with me, it's Daniel Haddad. He's head of commercial strategy at Octagon. Uh, he specialises in uh, the commercial strategy of uh, the global football industry and today we're going to talk about uh, Liverpool's own strategy and what the exit from or the absence of Champions League football means for the Reds this season and also where we could be heading in terms of uh, commercial activity in football and how important it has come to football clubs such as Liverpool. So uh, yeah Daniel welcome to the show. Thank you Dave yeah thanks for having me. Yeah I mean it's uh, (laughs) football has become ever more reliant on um, money, hence the reason why um, I'm probably in this role in the first place. But commercial activities underpinned um, success of football clubs more and more um, in recent years. I mean, we only have to look at the uh, the rise of, of Manchester City, how they've managed to leverage those commercial relationships they have in, in the Middle East, etc. Um, h- how important is it to, to the major clubs now, their commercial strategy? Yeah, I mean, it's it's the most important thing apart from, you know, the results on the pitch and the, and the two are interlinked. And I guess if you just look at, at the kind of broader market conditions within the global football industry at the moment, you know, the, the pressure on the big European clubs is going to become ever more intense. So, you know, the news yesterday that um, the... Um, public investment fund in Saudi Arabia are going to be acquiring four of the clubs there, the kind of whole strategic push around developing the football infrastructure there. You know, we're already seeing how that is kind of impacting the market on player wages, for instance, with links of now the likes of Benzema heading off there, maybe Ramos, maybe Messi. So, you know, you, you have to look at the elite European clubs within the global football economy and not just within the European kind of infrastructure. So, a lot of changes, FIFA becoming more involved in the club game with the expansion of the Club World Cup coming in 2025. Again, that will start kind of handing maybe a bit more power to some of those clubs outside of Europe who will start to be competing in bigger competitions. So, you know, the, the pressure on revenues really as a as a means of allowing a club's cost base to increase um, is more and more pressing. It's interesting you mentioned the uh, the PIF move um, yesterday because obviously they, they they've actually nationalised around four clubs there, haven't they? I mean, it's Al Ittihad, um, Al Hilal, uh, Al Nasser. I can't think of the other one. Um, but I mean, that interesting to me in, in that respect. There, that seems like it could be impactful further down the line in terms of um, having a knock on effect for both the transfer market, maybe commercial commercially what some businesses might try where they might try and push their money given the fact that some of the biggest players are going to be headed there um yeah it it adds a new dynamic to players who maybe are you know even in their late 20s and maybe have two three years left on their contracts i mean if you can start to kind of see those salaries come in in your early 30s you know i think the kind of difference may be that you know we've, we've kind of seen those clubs previously being you know, players' destination when they're 35, 36, right at the end of the career. Um, maybe we're seeing a first instance of if, if there is, you know, the, the kind of scale of, of investment that PIF and, and the state of Saudi Arabia has at its disposal means that they could kind of fund a project for a lot longer term than maybe 
China in the past or the MLS. So, you know, we're seeing a dynamic maybe where you're going to be looking at players who, you know, are going to consider spending more of their peak years within the Middle East, which then has a knock-on effect onto the sponsorship market, uh, onto media rights market and everything like that. We, we kind of saw it a little bit, didn't we, with um, with the, the, the kind of Chinese Premier League or Super League. Um, so much money went there, and it got to the stage where players like Oscar, were, who were, who were in their prime, were, were, were choosing that that particular direction. Um, so it'd be interesting to see how that kind of pans out in in, in the coming seasons, um, given the the fact that the transfer market is already and, and wages are already distorted heavily from 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 spending in Europe. It's adding that different dynamics going to be intriguing. Um, from a Liverpool perspective, um, I spoke. Uh, a few weeks ago to Ben Latte, who's Liverpool's commercial director. Um, obviously, commercially, Liverpool have been really, really successful uh, in, in recent years. They've been able to leverage their success on the pitch to great effect. Um, they're already a, a global brand um, through through historic performance. And they, they have that huge legion of fans globally. But they've their, their own commercial approach seems a little bit different. I mean, they they do a lot of retention of their own of, of sponsorships. I mean, Standard Chartered by the time, end of this current deal will probably be around the, the 17, 18 years mark, I think. And they've got a lot of historic relationships there with Carlsberg, still a, a corporate sponsor. Then obviously you throw into the mix the Nike, um, the Nike deal, which looks set to be a very long term one, given how so many different things are aligned um, across the business, whether it be investment from FSG into um, LeBron James's production company, LeBron James's positioning as an FSG investor and a, uh, a and a Nike athlete, etc. Um, how do you view Liverpool's commercial setup? Because it's um, it seems to be one of the most um, kind of well-oiled machines, I suppose, in in European football. Yeah, I think you know what what all the top kind of elite clubs have done, kind of similarly, is is how they staff the commercial department. So. You know, Manchester United were definitely the leaders in in that department maybe a decade ago, and and probably you know the best thing the Glazers brought to United was a very sophisticated commercial department where you know the resource was there to really uh, fully leverage the international brand power of the club. So I think for for a number of years, the likes of Liverpool, um, City, Barcelona, Real Madrid, all those clubs were, were, were kind of catching up with the fact that United made that first real investment into specialist sponsorship sales departments, regionalizing the workforce, etc. So, you know, it, it took it took a while for the rest of the clubs to catch up just in terms of manpower and resource, which obviously is is the first fundamental if you're going to kind of capitalize on on your commercial potential, you need to staff in in the right way, just like if you want to win the Premier League, you need to have the best players on the pitch to to maximise your commercial power. You need to get you know the kind of backroom off pitch staff right. So, I think Liverpool have definitely got to the position where they are on par, at least with all other clubs, in terms of resource for you know fully exploring the marketplace for opportunities. Um, I think from experience of, of working with Liverpool. The, the Fenway network in the US is very important. Um, so the US is becoming a much more important market for European football clubs. I think if you look in past years, there was definitely a reliance on Asia, Southeast Asia, really, as kind of the number one market outside of, of Europe in terms of 
you know, finding new partners and and finding new commercial opportunities. But the US really now um, is is arguably the most important market internationally in terms of, of you know brand sponsorships and. You know, there's a number of reasons for that. You know, the growth of of soccer in general in the US, but also the Premier League in particular out there. And I think you know more US based corporations have a deep understanding of what European football is and what it means and the power of that internationally. I guess you know if, if you're if you're talking to US brands, you know you're never going to compete with the major domestic properties for those brands when they're looking to target US consumers, but as they've kind of um, globalized internationally, I think there's a, a much greater understanding of the power of the Premier League. So the Fenway, um, you know, infrastructure in the US and how that how that intersects with the Liverpool FC commercial team is very sophisticated, and that definitely has led to a lot more um, opportunities being created. So in terms of the role of Fenway and, and the FSG's model in terms of maximizing Liverpool's potential in the US that's definitely been a success and I think Dave you, you kind of referenced the point around retention of sponsors so you know it, it it I think a lot of people outside the industry may always be looking at you know the size of the newest deal and and getting new partners on board but we're seeing with a couple of clubs so Chelsea would be one example that if your kind of big long-term uh, premium sponsors decide they don't want to renew their deals, uh, then going back out to, to market and finding a replacement can be very difficult because it is a highly competitive market. And, you know, if, if, if you're a club selling your major assets, shirt, sponsorship, sleeve, training kit, etc., at any one time, there's going to be some of your competitors selling similar assets. You know, you've got F1 that's becoming kind of more, more global and, and, and doing really well at the moment. And then obviously, you know, UEFA in the Champions League, etc. So it's it's a the competitive set of clubs is is so large now that you know going to market for big assets can bring big rewards. So you know Liverpool changing from from New Balance to Nike is, is a clear example of that. But you know on some of those bigger partnerships, what what you want to be able to do is grow them, grow them kind of organically over time through extension and expansion rather than finding new partners and. I guess what Liverpool have done very well is uh, servicing partners once they're on board. And, you know, it, it does speak to the power of the global Liverpool fan base that once a brand has decided to invest in Liverpool over United or Madrid or Barcelona or, or whoever else they might be kind of considering, um, there is, after they've spent a few years as a partner of the club and activating the partnerships, it does seem that they really then truly buy into you know, what Liverpool would say about themselves in terms of the scale and passion of the fan base. So that really is the cornerstone of any successful sponsorship model that you're long-term, you know, there's always going to be partners and brands that come and go, just global economic conditions, you know, things that happen within individual businesses that are unpredictable. But if you can retain, you know, 60, 70% of your sponsors when the contract's coming up for renewal, then you know, you're looking at consistent organic growth over time. It, the, the Nike deal is something which um, we, 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 I've written a lot about and we've had guests on to talk about, etc. Um, there is a, 
a view that that's kind of a, that there is no real ceiling on that. I suppose I think it was Liverpool's or view of of, of getting the best deal they could. Um, obviously, they take a lower uh, annual f- uh, rate from from Nike, and, and the upside is the twenty odd percent they get back from the sale of, of branded merchandise, etc. But um, the the things they have aligned in terms to grow that are, are, are far more um, kind of nuanced, I suppose. The uh, you've got LeBron James, who is um, while you know people know him over here as a basketball player, and uh, he was in Space Jam Two, etc. In the US, he is something of a, a cultural phenomenon. People either love him or hate him, type of thing. He has that sports effect, I think, um, because he's played for some kind of divisive teams in divisive uh, divisive markets, etc. But he is someone that has the real. Um, he is kind of a cultural phenomenon, almost to the scale of, um, well, not quite to the scale of Michael Jordan, because I think that was something which I also imagine we'll see, we'll see the likes of again, given the fact that how Nike have built an entire brand on, on Michael Jordan, almost a shoe brand. Um, but there is Liverpool seems to be making a push now towards kind of a um, a lifestyle brand, etc., to open their commercial avenues up to to people that may not be the traditional fan. They may not have, you know, they may not be so emotionally invested in the football club. And they may have an affinity with it, but they like the uh, they like the merchandise. So Nike obviously own Converse, and they brought in Converse into that. It seems it's and the US we you mentioned before. I mean, it's such a kind of a, a fertile marketplace, I suppose, for um, for football clubs at the moment. Given the fact we're we're kind of rolling towards uh, USA twenty twenty six, you've got the MLS, which is now starting to. Uh, take root um, properly within the kind of the American sports psyche. And then you've got the growing popularity of the Premier League, which I think is the second most watched league in um, in the USA. I think it's Liga MX, which is the most watched um, largely because of the, um, the the demographics around that. But I mean, do, do, do you see this, this kind of, um, this kind of Nike play where everything, there are so many simpatico relationships that exist beyond, you know, across the, um, a number of companies and entities and individuals. I mean, that seems very much a kind of an FSG play. I mean, did you see this having um, being a significant, um, significant deal further down the line for Liverpool? Yeah, and you, you kind of went over a few of the key points, Dave. I mean, you know, the, the size of the global sports merchandising industry is is something that I think the US has, has always understood, and you know, the fact that you know, NBA, NFL teams, et cetera, don't really ever change the playing kit. But still, if you look at revenues from sports merchandise in the U- US, you know, that that just shows that they've always thought about that model a bit differently to how maybe European clubs have thought about it in terms of you've got your home away, third, fourth, fifth, whatever kit, and then, you know, maybe a, a more limited product line after that. So, you know, just look at the size of Fanatics, the business, like the kind of, you know, number one global merchandise business. And, you know, they they grew their business by creating kind of those non, you know, on-field uh, product lines for all the major sports leagues in the US. So, you know, th- there's, there's definitely a big opportunity to grow, um, you know, merchandising revenue through diversification of, of a product line. Um, because also... You know that that kind of that kind of also uh, takes into account that fans in different markets may want different things. You know, a Chinese Liverpool fan may want a completely different product to one in India to one in the UK, just because of culturally the type of clothing that that people wear in those markets. So, um, you know, 
that for, for those reasons being associated with Nike or an Addy really becomes more important because they have the scale, distribution scale and also, you know, the, the resource to kind of create more and more product lines and also have more natural uh, ways to extend, you know, those product lines. So Adidas with originals, for instance, Nike, as you as you mentioned, through, you know, what they've done with Jordan, with PSG or with, with kind of LeBron and, and LFC. So, you know, it's um, it's definitely an area that many clubs are pushing um because you know as i say you, you're also then getting repeat business from fans so it's you, you don't have many fans every year who buy multiple kits you know usually fans tend to buy one or the other um but you might have fans who buy a kit and then two or three different other product lines and that's that's why actually you've seen the extension of things like the training wear range and, and you see the club launch these things at different times so they always now make quite a big thing about launching you know the kind of training collection and etc so you know it, it's it, it's probably more marginal gains compared to kind of some other commercial areas like media rights and, and total sponsorship revenue but you know there's a, a high growth ceiling um you know looking at actually the, the, the nature of, of football fandom and the scale of that the Moving um, on to kind of on-field matters, obviously it was a, a season of disappointment in the end for Liverpool. I mean, they, they missed out on the Champions League in the end. Um, it was long expected that they would. They made a fist of it um, in, in the, down the final stretch, but ultimately came up short. So it's Europa League football for them next season. Um, my understanding is it won't be impactful to commercial deals that are already locked in. I know um, a few years well, a couple of years ago, there was some um, that kind of surfaced with regards to Manchester United because I think they were two years into the Europa League and there was a concern that if it ran over into a third year, then the value of some deals starts to get knocked down, etc. Um, but in terms of um, Liverpool really, like like United in that respect, I suppose, um, while it's not a concern right now or, or, or for the, the short to medium term, um, they, ha- they kind of have to be part of that Champions League elite um regularly in order to to kind of leverage you know give themselves some leverage and, and a strong negotiating com- uh, position when it comes to, to to kind of these commercial deals because ultimately they've got a the challenge certainly for liverpool given the how they they operate under fsg it's um it's a self-sustaining model whereby there has to be organic growth within the business to, to prop up um, player acquisition and and uh, and increase payroll etc so um I suppose while this, they'll be very much hoping this season is just a blip, but I imagine they'll have one eye on on how they really need to address these type of things to in order that they they remain part of the Champions League elite moving forward and they get access to those commercial revenues. Yeah, exactly. And I think you referenced that. I think short term, the impact is is minimal. Even from a revenue perspective, I think you know there's a big difference between qualifying for the Champions League and and having a good run, right? So I think... The season, you know, where you know last season, or if we say two seasons ago, nah, I don't know. But the 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 final against Madrid, I think Liverpool earned probably about sixty five million pounds or so from that run of getting to the final. Whereas this season, being knocked out in the in you know before the quarterfinals, that I believe will be about twenty five million pounds. So there's obviously a big difference. So people talk about qualifying for the Champions League, but actually, what they should be talking about is you know 
getting to the latter stages. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, if Liverpool do progress all the way to the final in the Europa League that a lot of people are kind of assuming could be the case, then actually the delta between what they'd get in that scenario versus what they've earned this season of Champions League participation probably won't be too far apart. So, you know, from a short-term perspective, I think there's actually the, there's actually a chance that the, the revenue gap between, you know, how this season went on the pitch and next season could be more or less the same. Um, and then I think, you know, you've got to have an eye towards the changes in the Champions League from 2024-25, where A, you know, there'll be more money to the participating clubs because the, the competition's expanding. So we're going to the the Swiss format, one large group, you know, an extra couple of games at least for each club, um, you know, from competing in that one group format, but also more qualification routes. So, you know, the Premier League is probably going to be the beneficiary of the kind of best loser nation, right? So there's a possibility that, let's say, next season, Liverpool don't win the Europa League and finish outside the top four. They could still qualify for the following season's Champions League based on, you know, an algorithm somewhere. Um, But, you know, but that's also important because if you look at the Premier League now, you can make a case there being seven teams every year that would be fighting for four, maybe five spaces. So I think the kind of, you know, it's a double-edged sword, right? Fans don't want a Super League. They don't want guaranteed qualification spots. But at the same time, I think every club, maybe with the exception of Man City now, will probably have to get used to the fact that there may be a season every now and again where there just aren't enough places to go around. So um, that, you know, that, and for Liverpool, that's not been, you know, necessarily something uncommon in, in you know, pre-clock days. There were seasons where, you know, the, the club were outside the Champions League. So I think, you know, the, the whole dynamic of Champions League football, I think a lot of fans probably don't quite realise, but that 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 will be changing in a year's time. Um, but on the point of commercial kind of partners, sponsors, you also mentioned, Dave, that, you know, most sponsors, you know, have minimal impacts of that from like their tangible assets. Obviously, the likes of Standard Chartered, et cetera, will, will, will get less visibility just from lack of, you know, Champions League football and, and you know, lower TV audiences in, in Europa League. But, you know, the the power of, of Liverpool as a marketing platform remains the same. Um, and, you know, we saw with Man United and like a fairly lean run post-Ferguson for a while that that never really had any impact on commercial deals because the the foundations were so strong. So I think Liverpool would argue that they also kind of created those foundations that a year, two years, however, of, of like lower success than there's been over the past four or five won't really cause a ripple. Um, and and I I'd, I'd, I'd tend to agree with that. But obviously, longer term, when you are pitching against... Man City, United, Madrid, Barcelona, you know, you don't want to be lower on some metrics if they're within your control. So, you know, being out of the Champions League, you know, on a PowerPoint slide versus one from Man United will will stick out at times. So that's why it is important that it does remain um, as that consistent piece. But and also, you know, as I mentioned before, you've got the FIFA Club World Cup coming up. You know, Liverpool don't want to not be... I mean, 
it's likely they would qualify given the amount of European teams that are in. I think at the moment, Chelsea and Real Madrid are the only two that are locked in and then either the winner of City and, and Inter um, in, in, in this year's final. But you wouldn't want a scenario where Liverpool aren't, aren't represented in 25 in the Club World Cup, for instance. So, you know, there are... The, the football club football ecosystem is changing. And even though the Super League uh, move was defeated, competition structures are changing quite quite significantly over the next couple of years. So, um, you know, that creates more commercial opportunity, but it creates more risk of, you know, if you're kind of out on the outside. It You mentioned there about, um, you know, Liverpool... Um, trying to keep their metrics in, in line with some of the, the biggest and, and the best in Europe. Um, the brand finance report um, dropped today, uh, in, in, in fact, and it kind of charts the, the brand strength and the, the brand value of, of the biggest 50 football clubs in uh, in world football. Um, Liverpool dropped to fifth, I think, in terms of their brand value. I think it came into about just, uh, just shy of 1.2 billion. Um, important to stress that's not the, the, the valuation placed upon the football club. It's the, the, the value of the brand. Um, for those that are listening, but in, in, then they all. But it, interestingly, the, the the brand strength of the football club remains strong. So, um, I think last year they were second, and this year they they remain second, only behind Real Madrid. I think um, a brand brand strength of, of something like just just shy ninety four out of a hundred. So it shows the the appeal um, that Liverpool continue to have, despite the fact that Manchester Manchester City are obviously they they are the the dominant force in, in European football, not just English football at the moment. Um, and you have so many other his, you know, football clubs of huge historical significance all, all fight it out in there. Um, it remains Liverpool just behind Real Madrid in, in, in terms of that brand strength. I mean, why why does that endure so much Liverpool's um, appeal in terms of its brand strength, really, across Europe? Because obviously they've had, had great, great success in, over the past um, six, seven years in Jurgen Klopp. I mean, he's an engaging manager. They've had, they played a kind of engaging brand of football. Um, but it's, you know, it's, as did many other teams, and, and some have achieved more success. So, um, why do you feel that Liverpool's brand um, strength has endured? Yeah, there's a couple of dynamics. I mean, n- number one amongst those is, you know, we're seeing a period where the Premier League is pulling away from the other European leagues. You know the the ripple effects of that are clear, and it goes back to the whole Super League conversation. The clubs that are still, you know, plowing that furrow versus the Premier League clubs. So every big Premier League club has a competitive advantage um, against you know even the likes of Real Madrid, Barcelona, etc. So you know it's um, the strength, and I think you know the, the, hopefully the kind of big clubs will remember that it's the strength of the collective that is the thing pushing the Premier League, and why why it is where it is so it's that's not just down to Liverpool United City that is down to you know the whole kind of collective agreement and, and the strength of the group and the culture of, of British football so number one being in the Premier League uh, gives you that foundation that protects your brand because A it's the most globally watched league in the world it's going to continue to be there isn't there is no foreseeable scenario really where La Liga or Serie A or the Bundesliga starts to kind of erode into the Premier League's, you know, share a voice internationally. So that's number one. And then and then number two, I guess, you know, that if you if you there are not there are so many different ways of of like creating rankings around football clubs, right? So you've got this brand finance report, you've got the Deloitte Money League, you've got the Forbes, you know, 
franchise valuations. I mean, they they all the one kind of consistent metric they all flow back to is you know audience and and globality and fan base and you know if you if you ignore the numbers that are pushed out around how many fans different clubs have because you know the methodologies are pretty flimsy sometimes but if you look kind of on a comparative level you know Liverpool and United still are quite significantly ahead of every other Premier League club and you know are in the company of Real Madrid and Barcelona so you, you do have four super brands in terms of you know relative share of voice globally and then, and then what you've seen the clubs that aren't within that kind of four do is different things to differentiate themselves, elevate their brands, et cetera. So in the case of Man City, you know, City Football Group has has been a success in terms of this network of global clubs. You know, the investment into the Etihad, the development of, you know, the new music venue on the campus, the extension of that. You know, th- these are all things that, you know, are you know, help a club where the historic global audience is not at the level of those. So, you know, Liverpool, I guess, are in a are in a unique position where that that kind of global fan base, um, you know, was was always there. It never really eroded through through difficult years and actually has has definitely seen a a new boost because you know, football in some markets is still growing in popularity. So China, India, the US, as you mentioned. So actually, you know, it's it's probably a good time to be successful. So a lot of people talk about United in the 90s where the Premier League was globalizing, having success, success then and capitalizing on it. That's definitely true. But I'd also say now that the Premier League's growth trajectory means it's also now a good time to have success because there are a lot of... Um, lot of kind of um new fans still out there to capture um so liverpool's success since klopp you know has has definitely uh had an impact to you know keep that growth in line with with kind of madrid barcelona united but also accelerate it as well so you know probably have been proportionally growing faster than those other clubs within that same period just to finish where do you think we're we're heading with this? Because I've spoken to, to to numerous people around this, whether it's on podcasts or for interviews or just in in, in general conversation. In terms of how we commercialise football, um, we we've seen uh, certainly since once one traditional industry in terms of gambling seemed to have to be forced to move away from football and it moved due to government legislation, which is set to come in. Um, there was a, a brief move towards crypto, which opened up as a new market. Obviously, that's been beset by some problems um, across Europe in terms of, I mean, we've seen kind of Whalefin have to uh, row back on, on a deal um, with, with Chelsea and, and Atletico Madrid. Then we have Digital Bits into Milan. Um, they, they had to end. So so that was a kind of a, a period of entering into these commercial agreements with some of the unknown in, in a new marketplace. But there's going to be more of that. There's going to be new market opp- markets that open up new opportunities to commercialise. But how do how are the biggest clubs you think going to go around um, driving forward their commercial revenue? I mean, it's not not simply a case now of selling um, advertising hoardings, uh, etc. It's 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 far more uh, nuanced than that. Uh, I know there's technology that that they're thinking about adopting in terms of where you can place particular ads for brands um, based upon what marketplace is watching. 
So, so there's so many, you know, so many different ways we go, and a lot of this is all hinged upon the technology to be able to deliver it. Um, but where do you see kind of the next? Um, I'm not going to ask you for a crystal ball thing here for for the next 25, 30 years, but for the next five or ten years, do you think we're we're likely to see a a, a major change? Yeah, I think you know if you look at the the trend of investment into football clubs um, and where that investment is coming from, so I you know hedge funds kind of backed investment or nation state investments etc you know it, it hints that you know there is a large degree of confidence outside of the uk and that you know at a global level that the football industry has a long way still to grow in terms of total economic size because otherwise you would not be seeing you know the type of bidding that is coming in for you know, clubs like Chelsea United when Liverpool was mooted to kind of be, you know, maybe be open for a takeover, et cetera. So the market confidence is there. And I guess the, the other thing I'd, I'd always look back to is if, if you if you look through kind of the whole concept behind the Super League and it, it was kind of hinting at two things. Number one is there is definitely at some point and it's been talked about to death but there is definitely at some point a break away from the traditional broadcasting model that still kind of restricts football's ability to monetize a bit more you know like how a amazon or a facebook or a, a tiktok exception would monetize because if we, if we talk about sponsorship it's you know it, it still has a massive role to play but it's quite a traditional transactional kind of business model whereas you know, a more ad-led solution around content, you know, is funding media and content across verticals outside of football. So I still I still think there's a there's a um there's a, a point at where the broadcast scenario and landscape changes, which means that the ability to monetize football content changes as well. And why I mentioned the Super League is that if you if you look through the articles of association and the memorandums that were released around that, one of the key elements was that uh, the kind of founding member clubs wanted to retain a lot of the broadcast rights to either kind of stream the games themselves or kind of experiment with new technologies, etc. So, you know, one of the things that I guess was driving a lot of Super League conversations was, you know, if, if we do this ourselves, we don't have to sell the rights to BT and Sky, whatever we can put on our platforms and monetize. So I think that that is coming at, at some point and whether that is done through, you know, a collective like the Premier League or whether that is done through individual clubs or a collective of clubs, that that is something that will be coming and when it does, um if if you know, it's if the technology is right and it's made accessible enough, there's a huge revenue opportunity through selling, you know, more digital and programmatic led advertising through the global stream so you know if you think that you have you know let's say 20 million people globally watch liverpool man united i mean you know you can you can think around a lot of ways to monetize that through you know audience kind of audiences kind of subscribing and, and, and buying passive to watch but also the advertising around that so i think that is one area where there is a you know a big upside somewhere in the future and you know the, the whole kind of football industry and sports industry in general is trying to navigate a scenario where the guaranteed paychecks right now are so big that they're hard to leave behind and there would be a period of transition but that kind of that kind of business opportunity um is there and at some point it's unforeseeable that that 
won't change. So that that for me would be kind of number one area of commercial growth. The second one would be competition formats. So again, Super League, one of the reasons why it was mooted is because, you know, by changing competition structures, uh, you know, the clubs obviously see a way of creating more value. Um, that's why I think the FIFA Club World Cup is, you know, the, the extension of that, you know, is uh, is a pretty good idea because, again, it's is they're putting it in a slot in the calendar that's outside of the regular season. Uh, it's not going to be every year. And actually, you're going to get a lot of kind of global interest if you're going to have MLS teams competing. You might have teams from Saudi Arabia and that, China, et cetera. But, you know, there are, there are definitely going to be new competition formats that um, are going to be proposed, mooted. You know, Champions League format, as I've just mentioned, is changing for at least one cycle. Who knows where that will end up in the future? So I think we need to look at, you know, indicators and long-term what's happening within football and kind of see what that's saying in terms of revenue opportunities rather than, you know, short-term things like individual sectors investing in sponsorship because, you know, that, 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 that will always change, but there's a very clear ceiling on revenue potential through sponsorship, whereas through, you know, advertising media rights, these elements there's a still a huge growth potential out there. And it's those media rights, which are, are, are really core cool and, and they're what, what attract um, a lot of the, the US hedge funds and, uh, and private equity to, to kind of come into European football in the first place. Um, be interesting to see what happens. We may, we may yet get a, yet a Prem flicks further on down the line. Who, who knows? But uh, Dan, really a uh, huge thanks um, for coming on and for sharing your insight with us. It's been really, really fascinating. Um, yeah, and we'll hopefully talk again soon. Maybe hopefully next time be around uh, a Liverpool qualification for the Champions League and and the uh, the the lucrative possibilities that come along with that. But that's uh, that's for another time. But Dan, thanks very much. Yeah, thank you, Dave. Enjoyed that. Cheers. You've been listening to the Blood Red podcast from the Liverpool Echo.